You're listening to Soundbar, a podcast on white-collar defense, presented by Goodwin. It's opening day for Major League Baseball in spring 2000. Hope everywhere is springing eternal. Nowhere more so than in Houston, where a man named Kenneth Lay threw out the first pitch at the Astros' brand-new stadium. A local energy company founded by Mr. Lay had recently paid $100 million for the naming rights to the new stadium. It was Enron Field. Enron's stock traded as high as $91 a share in 2000. By November 2001, when it filed for bankruptcy, the largest bankruptcy of all time, the stock was trading at 26 cents a share. Enron, it turned out, had hidden mountains of debt off its books in so-called special purpose entities. Congressional hearings begin this morning in the Enron investigation. Ken Lay has quit as Enron's chairman and CEO, but he will remain... Kenneth Lay and other Enron executives were ultimately convicted of securities fraud and other federal crimes. A collateral casualty of the Enron scandal, with equally significant long-term effects, was the criminal conviction of Arthur Anderson, the accountants that had served as the outside auditor to Enron, signing off on Enron's financial statements. Enron's fired Arthur Anderson auditor David Duncan will take the Fifth Amendment today. Members want to question him about his role in the destruction of financial documents. Arthur Anderson was indicted in March of 2002, but not for anything having to do with approving Enron's accounting. Instead, it was indicted for one count of obstruction of justice. The indictment was based on Arthur Anderson's continued implementation of its normal document retention policy up until the day it received a subpoena from the SEC. It received the subpoena weeks after the Enron accounting scandal had begun to publicly unfold. At Arthur Anderson's urging, trial commenced just three months later in June of 2002. It lasted five weeks. There were many controversies during the trial, but one of the biggest was over the jury instructions. The prosecutors managed to convince the trial judge to deviate from the standard Fifth Circuit jury instructions and to find the crime proven, even without finding any evidence of consciousness of wrongdoing by anyone at Enron. Despite this weak jury instruction, the jury, after seven days of deliberation, reported to the judge that it was deadlocked. The court instructed the jury that they could convict Arthur Anderson, even if they did not agree on which individual committed the crime. The jury returned a verdict of conviction three days later. Arthur Anderson's business was destroyed. Tens of thousands of jobs were lost, both before and after the trial. Under SEC rules, a convicted felon could not audit public companies. The Fifth Circuit affirmed the conviction, but the Supreme Court in 2005, three years after the trial, in a 9-0 decision reversed Arthur Anderson's conviction. It found that the district court's jury instruction had fatally tainted the jury's verdict. In other words, Arthur Anderson's ultimate victory in the Supreme Court was the classic Pyrrhic victory, as the company had no meaningful existence in 2005, three years after losing at trial. The case illustrates many things. 
One is the breathtaking scope of organizational criminal liability, where the actions of a single employee, even when a jury might not agree on the employee's identity, can be imputed to an organization such that the organization itself can be criminally convicted. Two, how a criminal conviction, or even sometimes just an indictment, can be tantamount to a corporate death penalty in some circumstances. And third, and perhaps most significantly, many believe that the Arthur Anderson case irrevocably altered how the Department of Justice approaches decision-making regarding the investigation and prosecution of corporations, and as a corollary to that, how defense attorneys represent corporations. These impacts are still felt today. My guest today is Josh Levy. Josh was an assistant U.S. attorney from 1998 to 2005, and for the last 15 years has been a white-collar defense attorney at Robes and Gray in Boston. Josh and I discuss representing corporations in an era where the ripple effects of the Arthur Anderson case are still felt. I hope you enjoy it. Good morning, Josh. How are you? I'm great, Jim. How are you? I'm good. Glad to have you here. So you have been either a federal prosecutor or a white-collar defense attorney during the sort of entire arc of the evolution of DOJ policies regarding cooperation as the DOJ has laid out guidelines for what a corporation has to do to um, get leniency from the government and avoid indictment. But let's just take a step back. Why is cooperating with the government so important when you're representing a corporation in an investigation? It really goes back to the principles of federal prosecution for business organizations, which is in the U.S. Attorney's Manual. And cooperation is one of, one of the tools in the toolbox for a defense attorney when dealing with the government. It's not where you go immediately in terms of full-bore cooperation, but I think it's very important at the outset of an investigation to establish with the government that you're client takes the matter very seriously, is going to work with the government to get them the information they need in, a, in as timely manner as possible. Um, and then as you work through the investigation and you begin to understand the landscape of the facts and the legal theories, you may need to decide to take advantage of some of the DOJ policies that give credit to companies that cooperate in investigation where you're facing some serious legal liability. And how easy for it as a matter of, you know, sort of federal criminal law for a corporation to actually have, you know, criminal exposure, I think is what we defense attorneys would call it. Yeah, it, it's pretty easy. Um, the principles of corporate criminal liability really require two things. One, that an employee be acting within the scope of his or her employment, and two, they be acting to benefit the company. And when those two things are established, the conduct is attributable to the company uh, for criminal liability purposes. And you can't put a company in jail. It's an artificial construct in the law. And so the sanctions that a company faces are really financial, reputational, and then debarment exclusion from federal health care programs or federal participation in contracting. So the consequences for a corporation of, you know, ultimately being indicted are very serious. They're extremely serious because of that threat of that litigation um, and the penalties that go with it. Uh, they also create a cascade of downstream litigation consequences for a company, whether it be state attorney generals, uh, shareholder derivative suits, 
securities class actions, product liability cases. There's sort of an array of things that follow a government investigation that all need to be taken into account in deciding your, your strategy with DOJ. And, and so from the, the, the corporate criminal exposure um, thing that you mentioned, just so it's clear, you could have a rogue employee um, doing stuff that's illegal, that's not known to senior management. Uh, you could have, as a corporation, you know, a state-of-the-art compliance program, and none of those things are going to eliminate, you know, potential corporate criminal exposure. That That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think there's a... Um, a sense with the Department of Justice that uh, I should say an understanding that no company is perfect and no system is perfect and, and corporations are made up of humans. Um, and a company that has a very robust compliance program, very robust training uh, and has that experience of a rogue actor, they're in a much better position to get the Department of Justice to decline or pursue a civil resolution, some kind of soft landing as opposed to a company that doesn't have all those procedures and structure in place to try and prevent that rogue actor. So th those considerations are, th th they're relevant when you're negotiating with the Department of Justice, but they don't immunize you from criminal exposure. They, they don't. Um, you know, unlike uh, the uh, UK Bribery Act, which has a sort of escape clause uh, of that nature, the U.S. Uh, laws don't have that, uh, that type of um, out if you demonstrate a robust compliance program. So you're an AOSA in Boston in the early 2000s, Arthur Anderson happens. Company is indicted on one count of obstruction of justice. Uh, they're convicted a few months later. Um, their business is destroyed. Tens of thousands of employees are out of work, even before the conviction, just as a consequence of the indictment. Uh, now, put aside for now the fact that the conviction is later overturned on appeal due to a hideously erroneous jury instruction. When you're a prosecutor, um, is the Arthur Anderson case, is this discussed in the U.S. attorney's offices around the country or in, in your experience, is this, you know, is this seen as something that's a big deal? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's, a, it's an outcome that I think any reasonable prosecutor would not want. Uh, it's, a, it's a bad outcome for everybody involved. Um, but I do take a step back, Jim, when I was in the office, we were not focused on prosecuting companies. We were focused on prosecuting conduct, prosecuting individuals. And that's a, a thread that runs through all these DOJ policies is the most effective deterrence uh, that the Department of Justice can, can seek is to prosecute responsible individuals because that's really going to change corporate behavior. But then when you do have investigations of companies, uh, it's certainly never the outcome that you want for the company to go out of business. Because one of the, one of the principles of federal prosecution, cooperation is one of the prongs. Another one is uh, harm to innocent shareholders uh, and, and, and stakeholders, uh, employees. Um, so whenever there is criminal conduct at a company, there are clearly, depending on the size of the company, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people with families that have nothing to do with the conduct. So you have a duty as a prosecutor to um, to enforce the law and seek a just punishment, but it needs to be just, not just to the Department of Justice, but to the the people who have um, no no involvement in the conduct who are depending on that company. One thing interesting about the Arthur Anderson prosecution is that no individuals were prosecuted for obstruction of justice. There was one, there was one sort of a senior guy who cooperated. He was, I think, he pled guilty to one count of witness tampering. 
but nobody was charged with obstruction of justice, just the company, which is certainly um, a topic that has been rearing its head for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Right? Mm-hmm. It's been a theme um, in the media. It's been a theme in Congress. It's been a theme uh, on the bench with the judges that you have these massive criminal cases, upwards of billions of dollars in criminal fines, and no individuals prosecuted. I think Judge Woodlock, who um, often can be colorful on the bench, compared one company to some kind of reptile. I could had to go look it up after the hearing what it was, but talked about corporations shedding their skin, taking a hit, and moving on under you know maybe a different name uh, or having a, uh, a subsidiary take the actual criminal resolution, and uh, really critical of. Uh, the Department of Justice saying, where are the individuals? And it, that relates back to uh, some of these policies we've seen where the Department of Justice has tried to find ways to uh, penetrate uh, these cr- big criminal cases and force the companies to help them make cases against individuals. And that's really one of the animating things of the, the Holder Memo, the principles of federal prosecution going through the Thompson Memo and to the even more recently you know, maybe the extreme version in the, the Yates memo, which mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get to uh, in, in a little bit. Um, and we're going to talk about cooperation, but I, th- there may be something of a misimpression that when you represent a corporation in a DOJ investigation or an SEC investigation, that all the defense attorney, all the defense attorney like has in his, um, in his toolkit is grovel, beg, plead. But, yep. but there's a lot more to it. There's there's actual plenty of opportunity for real lawyering and advocacy yeah. in representing a company, yeah. isn't there? A- a- absolutely. So not every investigation, uh, government investigation, starts in the same place as a defense attorney. Sometimes you're aware of the conduct. You've been conducting an internal investigation. You know a lot about the facts before the government knocks on your door. Sometimes a government investigation starts with a search warrant and you're playing complete catch-up the whole time. But no matter what posture you're in at the beginning of the investigation – the first principle of federal prosecution is for organizations is the nature and seriousness of the offense. The government in the DOJ manual says that's the most important factor. So that's where we train our energies initially. What are the facts? What's the law? Is the government onto something here? Was there misconduct or was it not misconduct? And pushing back hard on the facts and the law, trying to get the government if you if you feel like um, there is no viable prosecution there to get get the government to decline. And make them understand that their prosecution theory uh, is not valid. And I've had that happen certainly in many cases. Um, But there are also cases where the government has an internal whistleblower, is aware of misconduct. You do your internal investigation. You're like, okay, the government – there is something here. We can't fight this case. Uh, And then you need to go to the other tools in the toolkit, cooperation being one of them. So as as a lawyer for – Representing, you know, corporations in addition to individuals. We'll talk more about that later. Um, you've you've operated in representing the corporation under the some of the the pressures that from some of these DOJ policies over the years, uh, in terms of actually how you conduct an internal investigation on a day to day basis. Um, you know, for example, interviewing employees. And obviously, when you're interviewing employees on behalf of the company. You know, you've got to give uh, up John warnings um, in order to preserve the privilege and as an ethical matter. Um, but how, how do you handle dealing with individuals in the context of this very fraught conference room where the individual is scared, they get an up John warning, um, there's a huge binder with their name on it, 
Um, how do you manage to navigate through that and, and try to, and get the information that you that you need to get out of a, out of a witness? Yeah, um, you learn over time. So first of all, I, I never put the binder in front of the witness. I always put it on the chair next to me and wait to pull it out later because it is it does uh, set a bad tone. I think um, you know I I really do try and make the upjohn warning clear, but I try and do it in a way I've seen it in you know done by various people over time. I think you can do it in a way that sounds very sort of uh, stark and uh, threatening, and you can do it in a way that's really conversational um, and and make it clear. But uh, it's, it's really important because I've seen it on the back end when someone has had to testify to what their results were of an interview they conducted. Um, and if you don't get that up, John, right, and you don't make it clear to the witness what, what, what the consequences could be or what the ramifications could be of their statements, uh, it could really uh, blow up for the company and blow up for the lawyers representing the company. Have you ever dealt with any issues regarding the sort of the, the mandatory nature of interviews in an internal investigation? Do you watch the show Succession? Uh, sorry, I don't have time for that one, Jim. Well, there's a great episode on Succession where where Tom, one of the characters, uh, he's being interviewed in an internal investigation by the company's lawyers, and he gets a tough question, and he just tells the lawyers. <laughs> I got to pee, and he walks out of the room, and he never comes back. Yeah, like that's not really how it works in real life, is it? Uh, maybe not those words, but that is sometimes how it works. I've, I've worked on internal investigations where we've scheduled interviews, and people have resigned rather than being interviewed. Um, when you're on to misconduct, people do vote with their feet sometimes. Now, and there are situations, particularly uh, with executives where you need to prepare with your client beforehand. I mean the general counsel and sometimes uh, higher than that. If this person refuses to talk, are you empowering me to tell them that their job is in jeopardy if they don't talk? Um, and you don't have to do that for every interview because a lot of interviews are, are cooperative. Um, and you don't go in every interview, certainly with an expectation that you're going to catch someone in a bad act. But there, you know, sometimes the way an investigation unfolds, you know which are the critical interviews. You need to be prepared um, to have that conversation. and, and I've never done it. I've never had to have terminate someone, but I've had I have had to tell people if you don't sit for the interview, if you if you leave here today, your job may be in jeopardy. And they usually they do sit, and that 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 may feel coercive. But um, what someone does in the course of their duties at, at at a company is not their own personal information; it's the company's information. So one thing that you have to say on the upjohn warning is that you represent the company and not the individual, and. This sometimes precipitates to someone who's being interviewed wanting to get their own lawyer, or maybe they, in advance of the scheduled interview, they want to get their own lawyer. How, how, how do you deal with that as the counsel for the company? Um, so when you get counsel for individuals is something that comes up in, in many investigations. The general rule of thumb is until someone has been requested uh, to be interviewed by the government, we don't get counsel for individuals. Um, but I've had that situation where people say, "Well, I'll do the interview, but I want to bring I want to bring a lawyer." We would say in that context generally that if you want to bring a lawyer, you're going to have to pay for that because we're not going to just pay for lawyers for everybody. But if your lawyer wants to sit in, that's fine. I want people to be comfortable in an interview, and I want people to be comfortable if I have no reason to believe they did something wrong. I want people to be comfortable if uh, it's going to be a tough interview. I, I don't want them to say later on they were under duress, they wanted a lawyer, I wouldn't give them a lawyer. And I'm generally open with the lawyer. Um, one of the best parts of being a defense lawyer, I think, is working in joint defense groups. I've had the pleasure of doing it with you and uh, many other lawyers in town. And 
when you're in those kind of situations uh, and you represent the company, uh, I typically will provide the documents in advance to the lawyer for the individual. Uh, uh, they usually get their lawyer, their client ready um, and, and probe the issues before we have a chance, and that usually makes for a more productive interview. And, and that can that can inure to the company's benefit. I mean, it's if there's a if an employee is shown an interview they haven't seen for five years, they might jump to um, the most pejorative conclusion. If they have a chance to work with their lawyer, maybe there's a different version or a different way to explain that email that can be for the benefit of the company too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've been uh, on I've been in the in the witness chair. I know what it's like to be shown emails from a year ago or your notes. We haven't looked at them in a long time. It, it actually it can cause stress that's completely unrelated to having done anything wrong, just the whole dynamic of the situation. So we try and remove that if we can. So you mentioned joint defense agreements. Now, at, at times in the various iterations of DOJ policy, uh, joint defense has been discouraged. I mean, I'm thinking mostly of the Thompson memo of 2004, where I'm not sure if it was in so many words, but the memo says that you know, you can't get cooperation if you're protecting culpable employees, and the implication seems to be talking about joint defense agreements. Have you ever felt pressure in dealing with an investigation where you're working with the Department of Justice about not entering a joint defense agreement? Um, the short answer is no. I've, you know, I was born and raised in the Boston area, and and I practice a lot in Boston. I'm in U.S. Attorney's offices around the country, uh, and I think the two areas that don't get probed, don't get pressured on is one is who's paying the fee for the individuals or is the company advancing uh, the the fees for the for the counsel for the individuals and, and two is are you in a joint defense agreement? It sometimes gets asked and I kind of brush it aside and say, hey, you're going to tell me everything that you're doing on, on your end to coordinate with um, the agencies and that type of thing. I make a joke and usually it goes away. So don't really get pressure on that unlike some other aspects of um, how these investigations could unfold. I mean, it's, it's, in your view, would it be improper for a prosecutor to ask if you're, either if you're representing an individual or a corporation whether you're in a joint defense agreement? I think it's improper. Uh, I'll try and say that without saying it. Uh, right. But, I, yeah, it's improper. It's not in the business. Well, let's talk about um, waiving the attorney-client privilege. Again, something that is mentioned in the Holder Memo in 99, the Thompson Memorandum, and then it becomes a little more downplayed as the... DOJ policy evolved since the Thompson Memorandum. Um, I mean, prosecutors have different ways of saying that. Uh, Josh, we, you know, we would, you know, we're kind of interested in what's happened in your investigation, um, and they can say that without saying it, right? I mean, did, did, have you had a prosecutors ask you directly for a waiver of the attorney-client privilege, or is it more cryptic? Um, I would say nine out of ten times it's much more cryptic. Uh, how, how would it work? Tell us how they would, you know, make the request cryptically or imply it. The, 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 I think one common way is to say, well, we're really concerned about you know individual X's conduct, and we think that he or she broke the law in this respect. It would really be um, good to know if that person is going to rely on advice of counsel. Uh, that would be really helpful to us to to know if that's if there's something out there that we need to be aware of if, in making a prosecution decision. So they're not asking it, but usually that's done in the context of a company that's sort of in a cooperation mode and either reach an agreement of principle and trying to work out the details or trying to reach an agreement of principle because there's been an establishment that there's been uh, misconduct. So I've certainly had that happen uh, in that in that context. Um, 
uh, and you know, you you have to decide uh, whether you want to you know, run to the principal and say the rules being violated down in this conference room, or you want to do what's best for your client. And what about? Um, I mean, you know, it's 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 a article of truth in the law of attorney-client privilege that facts aren't privileged. So sometimes prosecutors can request that you turn over all of the facts. And you, at the, when that conversation happens, they're not talking about email. They, they already have the email, but they're talking about the sort of facts that you've learned in your internal investigation. That can be tricky, right? Yep. Because um, there's a certain way you can disclose facts, which maybe doesn't waive the privilege, but other times it's a little bit tricky. How does, how does that work? How have you handled yeah, that? I, I, I'll take a step back. I, I Yeah, you produce all the emails, but... Um, Often, you know, you got a big firm, you got a lot of resources behind you. The, the government doesn't have the same amount of resources. So they could be very interested in the 45 documents we use for each of the 15 key witnesses. So that is something that we, we do turn over. That's work product. Um, but we, we, and you get credit for turning that kind of thing over if you're in that posture. Um, but then it's a sliding scale after that, Jim, and you, you're, you want to be cooperative with the the government and you want to deal with the problem in front of you, but you also have to focus on the fact that if you turn it over in this with DOJ, you're going to have to deal with it in collateral litigation. So I usually try and do it in baby steps and I'll sit with the government. I'll tell, let me tell you the key things I learned from the interview of Jim Rehnquist. And let me tell you the key things I learned from the interview of Josh Levy and I'll do an oral readout. Sometimes that's enough. And then maybe you go to the next step. We have to actually turn over the interview memos. That's pretty rare though that mm -hmm. you have to do that. When you're representing the corporation in an investigation, you may have different reporting channels. I mean, sometimes you're going to report to the GC. Sometimes you're going to report to the audit committee. How do these different reporting channels that you may have affect the, the dynamic of the, in, of the investigation, but both the internal investigation and your dealing with the government? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, um, it's like a law school 101 concept, but it's something that we find ourselves reminding us to ask ourselves, who is the client? So normally your relationship, if you're the outside lawyer, is with the general counsel. Um, and that's someone that you need to uh, you know, continue to stay in their good graces and, and work with on a, on a range of issues because you want to keep working with that client. Get the next case and the, the next case. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, But then you also have the C-suite um, and the, the CEO and, and other people, other key people but ultimately, your client is is the entity, is the is the organization. And there have been times when I represent the audit committee because the board is conducting their own internal investigation, um, and and you're not even sharing necessarily all the information you're developing with the with the management team, is particularly with those cases where the management team may be involved. Um, so that that having that discussion about who is the client, making sure your team is thinking through that issue too, and they understand who they can share information with and who they can't. And that can be that can be a little bit uh, tricky sometimes. Is it there's there's tension? It was, I'm not sure. It, it depends whether your client is the or whether the person you report to is the GC or the audit committee. But there can be tension between um, a company wanting to support executives that are in harm's way because it's better for the company if no one gets charged. And trying to cooperate would sometimes require you to, you know, turn over uh, information about executives' culpability to the government. How do you straddle that tension? Does it just sort of depends on the circumstances of each individual investigation? 
It, it does depend on that. It does depend on what the objectives are for, for that investigation. Uh, I've had situations. I've never, I've never turned over information to the government about an individual where I didn't believe that that individual had done something that harmed the company. That's sort of my test. And I've had plenty of situations where the government said to me, we think person X is a bad actor. And we've done our internal investigation and we disagree. And I've gone to the board and I've said, they want us to serve this person up. We don't think this person did anything wrong. In fact, we think this person was, was actually trying to do the right thing here and we've we refused to do it. So it really is an individual hand-painted type of decision. One of the trends that's emerged over the course of your practice is the increasing use of deferred prosecution agreements and non-prosecution agreements. Can you just briefly explain uh, what those are? Yeah, sure. So a, a deferred prosecution agreement is when the government essentially um, prepares a criminal charge, um, makes the corporation admit to a series of facts underlying that criminal charge, files it, and then puts it in deferral for a period of years, three years or five years. And typically during that time period, the company has to A, not commit any of the criminal offenses, and B, comply with a range of um, compliance obligations that are part of the agreement. So in that context, the, the benefit to the company is they don't have to plead guilty and the investigation is over. Correct. And they get a release for the conduct, assuming they comply with the, with the, um, the terms of the deferred prosecution agreement or the non-prosecution agreement. The critical benefit is you're not convicted of a crime. Now, that matters for your reputation. That matters for, for contracting. We have to ask – you're asked by many state agencies and state governments, have you ever been convicted of a crime? But most importantly, in the healthcare space, where there's been a ton of DOJ enforcement, you're not triggering the um, exclusion provisions that the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General has to say to a company, you're mandatorily excluded from participating in Medicare and Medicaid, or you're, we're using our permissive exclusion authority to, to, to um, uh, either require you to be excluded from the industry or sign up for a corporate integrity agreement. So... In in your view, would, would a deferred prosecution? I mean, deferred prosecution agreement is is in some ways it's 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 the ultimate way to get to yes. The Department of Justice gets to announce an indictment, and the company gets to announce we've put this thing behind us. Yeah. I mean, when you read a DOJ press release, um, the word deferred prosecution agreement is never in like the headline. It's right. buried right. in like the second paragraph. And yeah. You read the first paragraph and it's like, well, this is right. an indictment. Yeah. Bad stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, look, every situation is different. Normally, a deferred prosecution agreement is better, but not always. Um, cases sometimes resolve on a misdemeanor plea. And depending on which district you're in, you can have a plea agreement where you don't have to admit to a series of facts and you go to a, a Rule 11 hearing, a plea colloquy in front of a federal judge and you can actually limit the admissions you make, the factual admissions you make in that Rule 11 hearing because um, the government's going to get up and talk for 10 minutes about this is the conduct we prove and some judges will um, permit you to say, you know, we don't agree with everything that was just read by the government but we agree on the essential elements of the offense. That's your record. Instead of a seven-page statement of facts that you have to sign as part of deferred prosecution. And agree agreement. never to dispute, right? And agree never to dispute. And then why does that matter? Because in, when the state AGs start an investigation or when the, um, you get a consumer class action or, or health insurers or what, what have you, they're not on third base with a seven-page signed statement of facts. They have to actually prove it. They have the misdemeanor conviction, but it may not be 
enough uh, to help them build the case. Josh, let's switch gears for a minute here and, and talk about uh, an issue that's sort of always been controversial, but I think even more so in the last 10 years. And it's a, the difference, the, the sort of the relationship between corporate prosecutions and individual prosecutions. Lots of criticism of the Department of Justice after the, uh, the 2008 financial crisis and the almost total lack of, of individual prosecutions out of that, that same conduct. Um, and this criticism ultimately led to the, the Yates memo, which we'll get to in a second. I mean, do you think this criticism of the Department of Justice is fair, or do you think that these critics don't appreciate the comparative difficulty of successfully prosecuting, prosecuting an, an individual corporate executive? Um, uh, fair or unfair? I, I, having worked with so many different prosecutors over the years, I know that people wanted to make those cases. Uh, against individuals, and there was a lot of outrage in the financial crisis. There's a lot of outrage uh, when there's big healthcare settlements. The problem is that convicting a person uh, of of a criminal offense, and a jury knows the consequence of that. That's putting someone in jail. Uh, for someone who was really doing their job, and their benefit that they got the, was to continue to receive their paycheck, but they weren't lining their own pocket. They weren't stealing. They weren't. Um, uh, you know, receiving benefits outside of their employment, it's really hard to get 12 people to agree beyond a reasonable doubt that that person committed that offense. So that's why you've seen a lot of um, prosecutions of individuals and kickback cases result in acquittals. It happened in TAP. It happened in Serono. Uh, Stryker, Stryker it happened where it's really hard to get convictions of individuals. The, I mean, the data is pretty clear that in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a real imbalance between, um, I mean, there's a law professor at UVA who's done this study, and he found that in like the sort of 300 or so deferred prosecution agreements from 2001 to 2015, you know, sort of 300 companies agreeing to deferred prosecutions, that in only 100 of those companies um, were individuals actually prosecuted, and often they were um, you know, they were they were not the, the the senior executives of those companies. Sometimes there are obstruction charges in the course of investigation, or they're not really the core conduct. Yeah. Right. I mean, th there's some people who have speculated. You know, are all the corporations that plead guilty really guilty? I mean, some people have wondered. You know, given the pressure on a company to avoid indictment, um, and the sort of comparative ease that you've mentioned too about you know a corporation's criminal exposure. Um, I mean, is it a fair question to ask whether all these companies that are accepting deferred prosecution agreements, you know, are, are they in some sort of abstract sense truly guilty? That's a very legitimate question. Uh, I think if you, you could ask it a different way, if you took away the reputational harm, let's just say that our court proceedings were secret until there was a result, mm -hmm. and you took away the reputational harm and, and the downstream consequences, would more companies fight? I think they would, and here's why. You need to prove in most criminal cases that the defendant acted willfully. They acted with an intent to disobey the law under the Supreme Court case in Bryant. And that is a really high standard. And you can't aggregate the knowledge of the law in the general counsel's head and the conduct out in the field and say, okay, if you, if you mush those two things together, this company acted wrong. You need to show an individual in the company acted willfully. 
And that would be really hard at trial necessary. It would be hard for the government to prove it. But the cost of getting in the courtroom for the company are so high, you see very few companies fighting it. It's interesting. That's, I think, in the Arthur Anderson trial, the, the jury deliberated for a long time. They actually announced they were hung. And one of the things they were hung up on was um, they couldn't agree on which individual, if any, had actually obstructed justice. And the court gave them the instruction that you didn't have to agree. And that seemed to get them to, yep. to uh, a guilty verdict. And the so, Supreme Court said that instruction was wrong. Correct. So one of the one of the classic cases, the thing we're talking about is the is the Tap Pharmaceuticals case that um, the prosecution that was out of DMAS when you were in the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, the company pleaded guilty to the largest you know healthcare fraud fine ever, and ten or eleven individuals were <clears throat> indicted, and none of them were convicted. Some were dismissed by the government. Others were found not guilty at trial. Um, I, I know you don't have any sort of inside information on TAP because you weren't working on the case, but is is TAP sort of the example of this thing we're talking about where a company just had no other choice but to plead guilty even if no individuals could be convicted? I, I think it's one of several examples of where that happened. And I think it's um, this whole area that we're, your podcast is about, Jim. You can't go to, to the books and look up the cases. It's uh, these cases rarely get played out in a courtroom and a trial. And what happened at TAP is these theories of criminal liability were applied to individuals and the jury was saying, no, I'm not going to put someone in jail because they were whining and dining a doctor or providing, I think in that case, samples to a doctor and their only benefit was they continued in their job. I think it really – it showed the government how high that, that bar is and I think they've, they've failed to clear the bar in other cases. Josh, you've given us some great insights on representing companies in the sort of crucible of DOJ policy as it evolved. Is anything different now in terms of how you approach individual investigations or how you deal with the Department of Justice today compared to when it was when you started doing this? I don't want to date you, but like a decade and a half ago? Um, There's well, a lot of memos. More than that, unfortunately. A lot of memos over radio. time. What's really changed, if anything? I think what has changed is I think the string of all these corporate criminal resolutions has created a deep cynicism in the government about how corporate America works. Uh, and I think, frankly, if I was ever back in the government, I, my knowledge of how companies really work and how how hard companies try to make things right and do things right. and. Um, uh, I think there's a cynicism uh, in DOJ about whether that's really true or not. And uh, you hear a phrase when you do these cases, it's, it's just a cost of doing business. This, this False Claims Act liability, this prosecution, just a cost of doing business. That's not the way companies think about it. And um, That's a term used by the, by the prosecutors. By the government, yeah. I think that's changed. That's changed, Jim. I would say one other thing about you know the work in this field. We've sort of been talking about individuals and companies. I do represent individuals, and I think it's a really important thing that people who represent companies also rep represent individuals in cases. So you understand that perspective, whether you're representing an individual in a big corporate investigation, or you're just representing an individual whose whose liberty is at stake. Um, you know, I think having that that perspective is really helpful when you're defending a company. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because uh, you you've had you had a, a fantastic individual win in uh, the Boston Casino trial a couple of years ago, where your client uh, Dustin Denunzio was found not guilty by a jury after a lengthy trial. 
tell us just about the personal differences in representing an individual as opposed to representing a company. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of great corporate clients and people I'm close to at, at companies, and we've been in high-pressure situations. I know at the end of the day they're going home to their families. Uh, they're, they're, it may be a really tough period for the company. It's going to be about dollars and reputational harm and downstream consequences. You represent an individual. You represent an innocent individual. That is the highest calling of a lawyer. And that case that you mentioned in particular, um, I used all my conference room skills, conference room litigation skills I could to try and get the government to drop that case. Uh, I knew that my client was innocent. And uh, when that jury came back, that was the single best day in my career. Great. Josh, thank you so much. I cannot let you go without asking you, however, the mandatory guest question. What was your first concert? Who did you see? What venue? And who did you go with? My first concert was 1979. I went to the Kinks with Jimmy Snow, and it was at the old Boston Garden. Awesome, Josh. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Great to see you. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Josh. Let's continue the conversation. You can find me, Jim Rehnquist, on goodwinlaw.com or on LinkedIn. Hope to talk to you later.